Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. Our current teaching series is on Philippians, a letter written to a church for whom Paul had a clear affection about how to find the joy of the Lord amidst whatever comes our way. It felt like a poignant moment to stop and see this stuff, and we hope it helps. So, uh, welcome to church again. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I hope you have had a uh, good time over the last few days. I know it's not ideal, and I know probably many of us can't have been with our families, but uh, nevertheless, I hope it's been all right. And please know that you're not alone. We're here with you. We're thinking of you. Uh, we're praying for you. We love you very much. It'll all be over at some point soon, I think. Anyway, um, even in these difficult times and the most difficult times that we might be having, uh, we can, of course, still be thankful for so much, can't we? And I think it's actually quite a good practice to do, to just um, be thankful, to list things that we're thankful for, to thank God for them. And we can always celebrate as well, no matter what is going on in our lives. And as luck would have it, as we finish this our series on uh, Philippians, uh, it's what Paul actually encourages us to do at the end, to despite everything, in fact, it's not just at the end, it's throughout the whole uh, letter, despite everything, let's rejoice. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today, joy, and also money, but mainly joy. So uh, yes, you're welcome. Here is Philippians 4, read by Angel. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you, Angel. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, rejoice. Always. What do you know, Paul? You haven't had to live through this pandemic. You haven't had to live through the emotional roller coaster that was the presidential 2020 election. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the pressures of social media and FOMO. And actually, I have to post to my stories today because I haven't done it for two days. And what I have to post has to be hilarious. It also has to be thought provoking. It also has to be full of compassion and empathy. And I also have to look fabulous while I'm doing it because otherwise I will literally, literally die. Literally. What do you know about anxiety, Paul? You haven't got a clue. Now, of course, he probably did have a clue about anxiety. He was shipwrecked four times. He spent uh, a large proportion of his later life in jail and being beaten. And he spent uh, his kind of calling knowing that at any moment he could be killed for what he was preaching about. So, he probably did know a little bit. Now, this is not, please don't hear this, to belittle the um, very serious and very destructive mental health issues that we are all having to deal with. But it is to say that Paul knows quite a lot about what he is talking about and how not to be anxious. 
but I'm sure you're aware that in the US, from generation to generation, we are getting more and more anxious. Millennials, they were the most anxious, but then along came Generation Z, and they were miles more anxious. In fact, twice as anxious as their parents' generation. More than half of Generation Z report to being crippled by anxiety in the workplace. And a quarter, one in four of every person in that generation has been diagnosed at some point with depression. One in four. And it gets worse, one in five have been diagnosed with the actual anxiety disorder. Now, why this is has generally been um, understood to be a modern problem because every previous generation has kind of dealt with the same sort of thing. So why now are we getting more anxious? And quite often, the, um, it's kind of put at the door of social media. It's social media's problem. There's also probably a whole load of other factors going on there. But this isn't a talk about beating up on social media. It's not a talk about our obsession with diagnoses and probably being overdiagnosed in lots of cases, or just telling Gen Z and millennials just to pull your socks up and you don't know how good you've got it, etc., etc. I don't think any of those things are necessarily very helpful because for Paul and for us as Christians, even if we are able to fix all of these issues, the modern ones and the ancient ones, the things that do make us anxious, this will actually only get us so far down the road of a joyful and anxiety-free life. Because, Paul knows well, anxiety is not just a psychological or social or technological problem. Fundamentally, at its core, it is a spiritual one. And so it requires a spiritual solution. And the same is true when it comes to joy. Joy is divine. It is from God. It comes from nowhere else. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit, second in the list only to love. And so a lack of joy, just like the presence of anxiety, is a spiritual issue first and foremost. And these verses speak to that. There are two basic commands in them. Verse 4, rejoice. Verse 6, do not be anxious. And then one promise, verse 7, the promise of peace. But, and this is very important, and it's often where people get um, uh, caught out by this or hung up on this, is it would be completely wrong to think that Paul thinks that the way to peace is simply by obeying some commands, just fulfilling what he says. Guys, just, you know, just stop being anxious. Have you thought about just stopping being anxious? Just, just do it. Paul is not so naive. In fact, Paul never treats Christian ethics like some sort of rule book to follow. If we just fulfill all these commandments, then happiness will ensue. He knows that that is not how life works and it's not how our faith works. Instead, both of these commands, and in fact all of the ethical commands that he makes throughout the New Testament, are predicated by and uh, kind of our ability to fulfill them rests on a piece of theology. And that is verse 5, right at the end of verse 5. The Lord is near. This is the key to the whole passage. The Lord is near. Because the Lord is near, we rejoice. Because the Lord is near, we don't need to be anxious. And because the Lord is near, peace floods our hearts. It's a piece of theology. But 
theology is always not just something to be believed, but also something to be received and experienced and, to li and lived at. Because theology is alive. Dumbling over my words a bit. The Lord is near means two things, really. One, that Jesus will soon return and heaven will be fully ours in all its utter perfection. But two, the Lord is near right now by his spirit. His, he is so near that he is infusing our whole minds and bodies and souls, flooding it with, our, uh, with his presence. So, as many of you all know, over the last uh, couple of uh, weeks, uh, last five weeks, I think, um, Hannah has been uh, leading alongside Alice the um, Hearing God's Voice course on Zoom. And this has been happening in the evenings. And during that time, I have been in vain trying to keep our children quiet, not disturb the call. You may have heard them screaming, shouting, setting each other on fire, beating each other with sticks, those sorts of things. That's the sort of parenting that I can do. Anyway. By the end of this call, without fail, I'm ready to go to bed. I want to get into bed, probably watch The Crown and fall asleep. Not that The Crown is not good, but, it, you know, I'm just tired. That's not the point. The point is, by the end of the call, Hannah is anything but. Whatever mood she may have been in before hearing God's voice, and I will be honest, and I'm sure she would be too, some of them have been stinkers. They have been not happy moods. But before the call isn't what's the point. The point is, after the call, She's full of joy and life. She um, wants to talk about everything that's gone on. She wants to talk about how God has been speaking to people and how people have heard God's voice for the first time and how people have been prophesying. And she wants to celebrate, basically. She does not want to go to sleep. She wants to talk to me. Because in very simple terms, she's spent the last two hours ministering in and being filled with the very presence of God. The Lord has come so near as to take over her mind and heart and soul. And this is how it works. We don't just believe the Spirit is with us, but we do need to do that. But we also welcome his nearness, allow him in. And then the reality is we can't help but rejoice. We can't help but not be anxious. We can't be help but be filled with peace. And actually, those twin commands stop really being commands at all. They just become natural, inevitable consequences. Why, then, does the Spirit's presence bring about rejoicing? And why does it bring about an end to anxiety and bring about, instead, deep peace? Well, this is the point. Because when we believe the Spirit is with us, when we allow him to fill us with his presence, when we put ourselves in the place where he is, we take the time to listen to him and open ourselves to him. He fills us, and in so doing, the space for all our other gods, the space where they have been able to exert their influence, that space gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the god of anxiety doesn't have room to manoeuvre anymore in us. The god of joylessness gets kind of squished and squished and squished and actually taken out of the picture. And so it is with all other gods which might want to exercise their power over us. The more of the spirit, the less of them. So, be filled with the spirit, go on being filled with the spirit and be filled with the spirit more and more and more and more. This is the way to rejoicing, a lack of anxiety and peace.
Let's continue with the passage back to Angel. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Thank you again, Angel. I want to end um, to talk about one God whose influence it would uh, do us all very well to squish and to squish it with the, the Spirit's presence as much as possible. Because it's the one God who probably creates more anxiety and robs more joy than any other in our lives. And that is the God that money so often becomes in humans' lives. Do you know the number one issue couples fight about and get divorced over? It's not adultery. It's not abuse or unreasonable behavior or neglect. It is, yeah, I mean, you've obviously guessed it. I'm talking about money. It's money. Well done. Now, I want to talk about money for two reasons. Firstly, because it's money that Paul is talking about here, the Philippians' gift to him. Um, but secondly, because at this time of year, towards the end of the year, we have our kind of bread end of year giving drive. And we're going to be talking about this over the next uh, few weeks. And I want to begin to get us all thinking about money, how we might use what God has given to us for the furtherment of his kingdom. We will send out some more details, and Hannah's going to speak about this next week. So Paul goes on to talk about money here, ostensibly to thank the Philippians for their generosity towards him, but also really as this sort of natural uh, continuation of the theme of joy and peace and lack of anxiety. He has, as he says, learned the secret of being content, whether in plenty or in want. And he wants everyone else to experience the same thing. Because Paul knows the power of money. It can have power over us to rob us of life, to fuel anxiety and to, to rob joy from us. Or if we are able to live unaffected by its power, we can actually use it to bring life, as the Philippians have done for him. The secret, again, is allowing the Spirit to fill us so that the love and power of money don't get a look in. So let us delve a little deeper into how money works from a biblical perspective. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are these two kind of paradoxical, sometimes kind of seemingly contradictory streams of how money is to be regarded. On the one hand, there's the light side. Jesus teaches us not to worry about our material lives because God will give us all we need. He's happy to have wildly expensive perfume used to anoint him. He goes to lavish parties and attends a wedding so opulent, so excessive that all the wine runs out. He is supported by and associates with very wealthy benefactors. He tells stories like, for example, the Good Samaritan about wealthy people using their money for good. So the light side, but also there is the dark side. Jesus tells the rich young ruler he needs to sell everything he has and give his money away to the poor. He says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And he makes some extremely hard-to-stomach, uh, apocalyptic-like pronouncements such as, Woe to you, rich! What sorrow awaits you, for you have your happiness now? Strong stuff. 
And before um, any of us attempted to get on our high horse and go, yeah, woe to you rich, you wealthy hedge fund managers, it's coming for you and Jesus says so, by the dint of the fact, and I've said this before, that probably all of us can afford to get in a car or um, hire an Uber, is that what you do? Hail an Uber? Uh, and go to a coffee shop and spend $4 on a coffee. That makes us, in global terms, extremely wealthy. So I'm afraid that actually we are fabulously rich in global terms, and every single one of us, therefore, is in view when Jesus is talking about the rich. Such a shame, isn't it? But let us not avoid the uncomfortableness of the dark side of money. It will actually do us a lot of good to sit with it for a while. Jesus is so forthright about this aspect of money because he knows its power. Now, theoretically, yes, money is um, in and of itself neutral, which is why if you have more money, you do not need to and should not feel guilty about that. And if you have less money, you do not and should not need to feel resentful. However, in practice, the potential for money to become all-powerful over us is so great that we might as well, like Jesus, call it a god and a malignant one at that. Filthy lucre, unrighteous mammon, in Jesus' words. So is money, filthy lucre, ruling you, or are you living blissfully uncontrolled by it? It's a good question to ask. Symptoms of it being in charge are anxiety about money, not even wanting to look at the bank account for fear of what might be there, unrestricted spending, hoarding, coveting, fantasizing about what might happen in the future. Asking this question is actually the very beginning of the process of derobing money of all its power. We've actually just got to admit that it's had power over us and how it has and is and can rob us of our life and freedom and joy. I remember when we were in the UK, uh, they announced Euro Millions. So they, they used to have uh, the National Lottery, where you, it's like the Californian Lottery, where it's kind of small fry, and then Euro Millions was the whole of Europe playing. And it was fantastical sums. And I remember thinking about this for a while and realizing that no, 10 million was not going to be enough. I needed to go for the ones that were more like 90 or 150 million because that would be enough. We need to admit that it can have power over us. We need to admit how and it has and is and continue to rob us of life and freedom and joy. Because we're only able to act shrewdly and joyfully, and joyfully with money, something that Jesus teaches us to do, once we've acknowledged that it has and had, has had power over us. So let us just all admit it, shall we? We're all in the same boat. Good. But, as I said, this is only half the story. On one level, money would be so much easier an issue to deal with if it were just completely 100% all bad. If the only side to money was the dark side, we could just simply reject it, not pursue it, get rid of it as quickly as uh, we found ourselves ever making any of it. Because basically, if money were all bad, we could treat it like mosquitoes, or the music of Drake, or the sport of golf. Something to be avoided at all costs, lest we get infected with its disease. 
But to do this with money means we've actually failed to take seriously the whole other side of money that the Bible describes. It does not just have a dark side, it does, as I said, also have a light one. And part of the Christian maturity, part of being mature as a Christian, involves holding together both these sometimes paradoxical sides. It's neither all good and it's neither all bad. On the light side of things in the biblical witness, wealth is not just seen as this generous, abundant gift of our loving God, but money can, even more startlingly, be a means by which we draw closer to and enhance our relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden is this sort of lavish abundance of a place where everything is declared to be good, not just passable, not just good enough, but excellent in all its bountiful richness. This is the gift of God to the world. In the New Testament, the wise men brought their considerable wealth to Jesus at his birth as this extravagant act of worship. And it's when Zacchaeus generously pays back more than he legally or is morally obliged to do so that Jesus declares salvation has come to this house. And the likes of Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as well as various others, use their wealth generously in service of Jesus and his kingdom. So money and wealth are seen as a way not only of expressing love to other people, but also of actually enhancing our relationship with God. Importantly, when Jesus comes, uh, commands us to pray for daily bread, he's bringing the need of material provision into the spiritual realm. So material things are not things to be despised. In fact, they are part of true spirituality. So this is the central teaching of the light side of money in the Bible. Firstly, it is all provided for by God. All of it. Everything we have is created by God to bless and enhance life. And often it actually comes to us despite, not as a result of, our hard work and effort. The rural communities of ancient Israel knew this well. Of course they would work hard and of course they would do all they could in their capacity as farmers to reap bountiful harvests. But time and again, their greatest returns had as much, if not more, to do with the fact that it rained when it needed to rain and it was sunny when it needed to be sunny. Now, for the biblical writers, they are absolutely okay with this because these are all signs of God's bountiful provision that he cares deeply for us, his children. Yes, our hard work is important, but so much more important is trusting God that he will provide. He provides all our needs in bountiful ways. So firstly, he provides, but secondly, and this is closely linked, he owns it all. There's actually hardly anything clearer in the Bible than the idea that the whole world and everything in it is the Lord's. Now, we, as Western individualistic types, can find this particularly hard to get our heads around. After all, the shoes on my feet, I bought it. The clothes I'm wearing, I bought it. The rock, I'm rocking, I bought it, because I depend on me. A reference there for 20 years ago. Now, in the UK, there is a saying that an Englishman's home is his castle. The same sentiment can be applied, uh, I think, to most Western nations. The idea is we work hard enough uh, to earn money to buy our house and then it becomes ours. It's our castle, our security, no one can get in, our defence against all the world and what it might throw at us. It's ours and no one's going to take it away from us. 
Unfortunately, this is just not a biblical view of life, and it would be, do us very well to try and shake it off, because it will suck us into this dark, controlling side of money. Instead, being aware that God owns it all frees us from anxiety about money and our possessions. Uh, John Wesley, the Methodist preacher, was informed at one point of the terrible news that his house had burned down. And he exclaimed, well, the Lord's house has burned down and one less responsibility for me. Now, leaving aside how that probably made Wesley quite an annoying person to be around, the lesson still rings true. If we want to be free and joyful and devoid of anxiety, let's accept how things actually are, as opposed to how now and again we would actually want them to be. How they actually are is that God owns it all and he provides. This sets us free. It allows us to be generous with our money, with our possessions, because it's not ours in the first place. If you imagine how easy it would be to give away some other person's money, it would be quite easy. Just imagine that, though, is the actual case for everyone. It's not ours. And so Jesus, actually, and Paul following him, they are unequivocal in their expectation. Everyone's going to be giving to the needy. It's not just a kind of optional extra. It's expected. Now, does that mean you have to? Absolutely not. If you never give any money away, God will love you exactly the same. You can be a miserly, cheating, ungenerous little scrooge of a person, and God will still think you are absolutely fantastic. He, you will be his favourite. That is the extraordinary grace of the gospel. It's the extraordinary unconditional love of God. There is nothing you can do to stop that. But the question is, why would you want to stay like that? Why would any of us? Because the reason that Jesus and Paul both expect giving of us is because one, it's good for us, and two, it's good for our beautiful, bountiful world. We are so closely connected to the money we have that it's almost like it is part of us. It's why uh, we as a culture are so obsessed with what people are worth or what sort of house or car or preacher's sneakers people have. Often when I Google someone's name, the thing that comes up is, and their worth. In this fallen world, we find it virtually impossible to separate who we are from the money we have. It's like it becomes part of our personality. Carl uh, Menninger was uh, one of the leading psychiatrists of the world for the best part of 50 years in the previous century. And he told the story of one wealthy patient who had uh, more money than he knew what to do with. Menninger asked him, so what are you going to do with all that money? And the patient replied, well, I'll probably just worry about it. So Menninger asked, well, you know, do you get pleasure out of worrying about your money? And the patient replied, no, but I get such terror when I think of giving it to somebody. This terror is very real. When we let go of money, we are actually giving part of ourselves away. And that can be very scary because it's our security. But this is precisely why it's so important to do. 
when we give money, we are releasing a little more of our egocentric, self-serving selves and our false security. And what we are doing is we are displaying actual real faith. This is the thing that God really likes. As we often say, faith is the magic with him. When we're giving, we are for once not just singing about how we will give our lives to God, we are actually giving our lives to God. And this is when we draw close to him and he draws close to us. We feel his love and his pleasure. We are freed because with mammon out of the way, the spirit has space to work and to fill us once more. As anyone who has mastered generosity, whether they are rich or poor, will tell you, experiencing God's closeness as we give ourselves to him is just full of joy. So it's good for us, but it's also good for the world. God's gift to us is a world of bounty and plenty. There is more than enough. It is beautiful. Look at it. He owns it all and he provides it all. But... As Paul acknowledges here, and obviously the New Testament reiterates throughout, for the very fact that there are needy amongst us, which Paul has been at times, clearly the world isn't functioning as it was originally intended to. Everyone does not have more than they need. Many don't even have what they need. And so throughout the biblical narrative, God's call to his people is to alleviate the suffering to give, to rectify what is wrong. And so in the Old Testament, the stress on God's ownership of all resources is so strong that the whole economic system is set up to reflect this. It's not our money, it is God's. And so, for example, by law, a percentage of the produce of the land was always given to the poor. Every seventh year, the land was left fallow and whatever, uh, whatever came up was given to the needy so that the poor may eat. And every 50th year, all slaves were free, all debt was cancelled, and the land was returned to its original owner. The reason for so violently upsetting everyone's economic apple cart was, very simply, because, as God declares, the land is mine. So when we acknowledge God's ownership of everything, we start changing the question we ask about giving. We stop asking how much, money of, how much of my money should I give to God, and instead we start asking how much of God's money should I keep for myself. Now, to end, hopefully it goes without saying that you should not give all your money to your church. Be generous and frivolous and give to anything that excites you, anything where you can see there is eternal value, anything which builds uh, God's kingdom, which helps people's lives. But equally, hopefully it also goes without saying that not giving money to the church you belong to is sort of psychological doublethink. It's very hard to belong to something when we are only partly invested or not even invested at all. So with that in mind, I want to explain briefly where things are as a church and how you can give to bread as we end the year. We are looking for $100,000 for the end of this year in addition to the monthly giving that we get. This is a figure that we have actually looked for every year and thanks be to God have received uh, that much if not more every year. I know times are hard, but 
this 100K is not actually about getting us through um, 2020 pandemic. Thanks be to God, we've pretty much got through it because of the kindness and generosity of you and of course because of God's provision. Really, this 100K at the end of the year is about planning for the future. And Hannah and I have been talking a lot about this, about 2021. And we're very excited about this because we will be meeting together again in person. We will be kind of relaunching. And to coin a phrase, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, we need to build back better. It was never a great phrase, was it? But anyway, that's where we're at. It's exciting because we are going to need to rent a new facility. I don't think we're going to be able to use the school again. Um, but this is going to give us so much freedom to do so much more for the church. The church is going to grow. We're going to be able to impact a far uh, greater degree of people by having a presence, not just on Sundays, but hopefully throughout uh, the week. It's uh, there to help pay our staff, and we're excited about um, uh, bringing some new people in. Uh, but basically, it's allowing us to continue uh, what we have been doing pre-pandemic and what we want to grow into um, over the coming year. Now, we don't uh, have support from church planting organizations or denominations. All of the money we receive comes from the congregation. So I'm appealing to us all. Um, can we think about how we might be able to give towards this 100K? We will be giving you regular updates so we can see, and it will be just such a joyful thing, won't it, to see that figure coming down and down and down and down again, and then going into the negative because we've brought in more money. That would be fantastic. As with all things in the kingdom of God, as with all things discipleship related, it should always be a matter of the Spirit's prompting. We're called to follow the Spirit first and foremost. We're called to be filled with the Spirit, to allow Him to speak to you. We're going to listen to a song of worship in a minute. And I want to use this. It's a kind of, um, it's worship of God. But I want to use this um, to allow us to hear from Him, to allow Him to prompt us about how we might give at this time. To finish, the key to all of this is the belief and experience that the Lord is near. And so to the two commands that Paul lays out to rejoice and not be anxious, we can actually add a third, give generously. The Lord is with you. He's filling our hearts. And so actually we can't help but give, but to be generous as he is generous. Because the Spirit is here, because he's filling our lives with his presence, let us give money freely and willingly and abundantly and let us rejoice and let us not be anxious. Let us be filled with peace instead. Amen. Let me pray for us as we end. Come Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are near to us. And we thank you that you dispel all anxiety that you fill us with joy, that we might rejoice and live free from all the worries of this world and help us to be generous people. Help Bread be a generous church that gives to the needy, that serves the community, that builds your kingdom here in Los Feliz.
in LA and for the wider world. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.